Thanks for checking out the Lakeshore Podcast. If this is your first time listening with us, we want you to know God loves you. We want for your hope in Jesus to be renewed and for your faith to come to life. Wherever you are joining us from, we hope this message encourages you. Give us a little bit of a, of a background uh, of where we were the last time, and then we'll jump right into what we're going to look at tonight. Uh, these are just some highlights from the last notes in the last session because I think it's important that we bring these big concepts with us as we're living in the last days, but certainly as we approach uh, trying to understand some more uh, found fundamentals about the end times. So we talked about last time that whenever Israel becomes embroiled in a conflict, we, we really should take notice as Christians. Now, we don't have to get alarmed. We should never get in fear The New Testament especially uh, warns us away from that. But we should take notice for three reasons. Number one, because Israel is central to end time events. It's like like the the center of the clock. Israel will always be, be the centerpiece, the hub of how end time events unfold. And, and because when, when you look at the book of Revelations, we'll talk about it just for a moment, how, how to start to try to understand it holistically. Um, but there's so many different interpretations. Uh, when I was first in Bible college, I couldn't wait to get into some of these topics and some of these classes to finally understand what it meant. Only to understand, there's about eight or nine different interpretations of, Rev, uh, of the book of Revelations, of eschatology, of end time events. And, and I'm not saying that, in my opinion, that all of them are as strong as the other. But, but they all have some valid points. And, and they all make just enough of a point for right when you think you got it figured out, you're like, wait, what? And, and, it, and it turns. And so it's important for us to recognize in all of that, no matter what version you're going to look at and what interpretation you're going to take, Israel will, will, remain, will remain central to this end time unfolding. So it's important. So when something happens in Israel, we should pay attention to that. Here's the second reason. Because even though in the New Testament, the nation of Israel as a whole rejected Jesus as their Messiah, the everlasting covenant that they have with God still holds. And, and throughout the end times, one of the primary objectives in God's heart is he's going to come back and redeem or give Israel another chance to accept Jesus. And so this is really important for us to recognize uh, God's not mad at Israel. He hasn't rejected Israel. He, they've got an everlasting covenant with God. And so God is still uh, very much, uh, has, has, his, has very much his heart set on Israel. The last one is for us to realize that Christians are engrafted into a, into a spiritual lineage with, with Father Abraham. We don't often think about the fact that Israel is actually a spiritual nation. Abraham was from the, the land of the Chaldeans. Uh, he was worshiping in a cultic, cultic guy, worshiping the moon. That's how he growed up, grew up. And God introduced himself and said, if you'll follow me, we'll start a whole new race of people. And so at 75 years old, Abraham uh, accepted God's invitation, made a covenant with God, and Abraham became the first of what would become the nation of Israel. Started spiritually, not ethnically, not racially, spiritually. And in the same way, we as Christians, even though we have an origin of our ethnicity, 
We as Christians, when we got born again, we were born into a spiritual family and that spiritual family is grafted into Israel. We are spiritually related to them. And, and we have to understand that for a variety of reasons. It doesn't mean that we agree with every political policy or military directive that they make. There's no perfect human leaders and, and we're not trying to believe that. We're not trying to propagate that. But it does mean that we recognize that God's hands on Israel. We recognize that we're spiritually related and connected to them. And that therefore we have this divine obligation that God's not shy about in the Bible, that we are to partner with them in prayer, to support them spiritually, and to pray that God will bless them. In fact, there's a long-standing covenant promise that was made to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12, that God said, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And that's repeated throughout the Old Testament as, as a promise that's connected to, uh, to Abraham or to, to the nation of Israel. The last thing it's important that we should understand that as we're studying and we're looking at different nations and different uh, tribes and different ethnicities at times, we, we have to study these things with a kingdom mindset all the time because the kingdom mindset will keep us from stereotyping people or groups. Listen, the, all of the people in the Bible that show up, even the ones that show up on a, on a really dark side of the story, that, and, and they're deemed as a wicked people, we have to remember those are the same people that John 3.16 said God so loved the world that he sent Jesus to die for every single one of those people. And he is desperately looking for a way for them to, to give their life to Christ and to, and to become saved so they don't have to suffer eternal judgment. We, we have to recognize we, we can look objectively at what's happening politically, at what's happening, uh, we, and, but, but we can't get into a mindset that those are bad people. No. In the middle of all of these nations that are on the wrong side of the kingdom equation, there are Christians, there are believers embedded into all of those. And so we, we have to remember, uh, we're, not, we're not people that are, are hating or be, are forming these preconceived prejudices against a stereotype or against a people. We're looking from a kingdom perspective and we're talking about darkness versus light, not people versus people. So that's really important. Well, we're going to shift this time, and today, today we're going to try to answer, we're going to start, we're going to try to answer three questions. And here's, here's what I want to talk about. Uh, why is it that we see a rise in anti-Semitism? And I know that might sound like, well, of course, because Israel's in war. Well, yeah, I think that's what spurs it, and that's kind of what, you know, put fuel on the fire again. But there's another reason that's, that why this is flaring up, and it's flaring up in rather odd places like the one closest to home is us, the United States. And we, we've got people on college campuses, we've got people that are rioting in the streets all, all for the Palestinian rights and they're doing it against Israel. There, there's an anti-Semitism that's just obvious and glaring. It doesn't seem to have reason attached to it. It doesn't seem to be people that are willing to look at the facts of what's happening and to compare those to things that have happened to our country and, and how we as a nation you know, uh, rallied together and, and we made some of the same kinds of choices. But there's, a, there's an underlying reason for that and we wanna see that today. The second thing is, why is that important to us as Christians? And I'm not talking from a humanitarian or a compassion point of view. Again, back to that, we're spiritually connected. 
And if we can get far enough in the study, one of the things you're going to see tonight is we have to pay attention to what's happening with the rise in anti-Semitism because the same devil who hates the Jews is the same devil who hates those, those, those Christians that are related to the Jews. And as the rise in persecution for the Jews go, so goes the rise in persecution for Christians. They're related. They're connected because they're from the same spiritual root system. And so we're going to see that from the Bible today. Um, this is not my opinion. I'm not making it up, but the Bible tells us that. And, and then we want to see how does all this mix in with the end times. And I think we've got uh, a really good passage in Revelation that will help us to get a long way in answering some of those questions. But, but first, let's kind of look at it from a natural point of view, because you're going to hear some of these things. You'll see them on posters. You'll hear them on talk shows and, you know, opinion articles. And, and, uh, and so we want to look from a natural point of view first and, and real briefly, why is it that the Jews have been hated so much? And this is not just recently, this has been like throughout the history of the world. There's not any other group of people in the history of the world that's been discriminated against more, that's been segregated, that's had suffered intense persecution uh, more than the Jewish, pe- Jewish people. In fact, in the last 1,700 years alone, they've been expelled uh, from over 80 different countries. And wh- why is that? That we, that we don't have another group that even compares. If we look back further, uh, there's, there's lots of writing. Uh, you can find it pretty easy. You can click all over the internet. And, but there's secular and biblical, biblical historians. There, there's a political and, and uh, sociology majors and authors and, and philosophers. And, and they've written extensively about the number of nations who've intentionally and strategically attempted not just to conquer, not just to defeat in battle, but to wipe the Jewish race off the planet. You don't have any other nation or any other group of people that's been singled out by as many different nations with the same goal in mind to wipe them off the planet. Some of these, we, we recognize them from the Bible if you spend any time in the Old Testament. It's the Babylonians, the Persians, the Assyrians, the Egyptians, the Hittites. But then more recently in our history, we're familiar with a couple of these, these uh, groups. Nazi Germany was one. And of course, recently in the last decade or so, we've got those self-proclaimed terrorist groups, uh, ISIS, Hezbollah, and Hamas that, that we're, we're seeing now. But on every single one of these occasions throughout the history of the na- the is, uh, Israel's nation, regardless of the size of the army and the overwhelming odds stank- stacked against Israel, every single enemy has failed every single time. And from a natural point of view, uh, it, 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 it's pretty amazing. I mean, there, there's not like a super amazing battle strategy. And, and when you look at a map of Israel, in fact, Spencer, I, I didn't know if I was going to use it or not, but pull that, pull that picture up. Look at this. So, so now all the surrounding countries there, m- most of the ones surrounding are all those Arab nations that at, many of them are on this list. Many of them contemporarily uh, you know, back in just after 1948, when they were Israel was declared a nation, and they were given that little red strip of land right there, about the size of New Jersey, and all of those Arab nations that you see surround it, they went nuts and they planned, and the very next day they attacked them, 
and they tried to recapture, to override the United Nations and to recapture. And this has been going on over and over and over. But when you look at the size of, of that little tiny nation and you understand the, the military strength and there's no possible way and no possible reason why they should have been able to still be on the planet Earth and still be functioning and still be maintaining their ground in the way that they are. And yet that little tiny strip of land, according to the word of God, is the centerpiece of what happens in the rest of the end times. Everything revolves around that. As we get closer to the end, all of the nations of the whole world will turn their attention on that little strip because evidently that little strip, in their opinion, is, is the, the reason for the world's problems and the solution to the world's, uh, to the world's um, betterment. If we can just get those guys out of there and take that land. But it, it's amazing when you look at it in perspective and you say, that's it. That's not even the whole world represented, by the way. That's just the continents over there in the Middle East. If you were to add the whole world and realize it's just that tiny little red piece. So as historians and you know, political science majors and military giants are studying this, they've come up with at least six possible rationales that have fueled anti-Semitism over the years. And, uh, and you'll, you'll probably recognize them, maybe not in their, their, their title, but in their descriptives, uh, either from stories you've read or uh, maybe even some of the recent uh, rhetoric, rhetoric and hyperbole that's going around. But the first one's racial theory. Uh, and this is that Jews, the Jews have been hated because they're, be, they're believed to be an inferior race. Of course, that's what Nazi Germany was all about, and it wasn't the Jews alone, although they seem to be the center of the bullseye. Uh, another theory uh, about why the Jews have been hated so much is economic theory. It's the Jews have been hated because they've accumulated and possessed too much wealth and power. And the Lord's blessed them they, you know, as a people at large. I'm not stereotyping, but, but God has blessed them and they, uh, they have become very prosperous. It seemed like no, no matter where they land, starting way back in Egypt, Joseph came and the nation was blessed and the people began to be blessed and uh, God seems to bless them. Scapegoat theory. <clears throat> the Jews have been hated because they're perceived as the cause for the world's problems. And that one seems to float around in the United Nations. It, it's dressed up in you know, very political, sophisticated language, but uh, oftentimes you'll hear one nation, particularly the Arab nations, but some of the other nations in their discussions will hint towards that, uh, won't come out and say it. I hyphenated this next one just so that it would be easier to read, um, but it's deicide theory. And this means that the Jews have been killed uh, have been hated because they killed Jesus Christ. Of course, the Protestant, the Catholic, the Christian religions, we're, we take most of the blame for this. And we took up this big offense for years back in the Renaissance and before that, that, uh, you know, that the Jews were the problem because they rejected Jesus and therefore they're our mortal enemy. And uh, <clears throat> the chosen people theory is the last, you know, uh, just the most basic or the popular one. And that is that Jews have been hated because they arrogantly declare that they're the chosen ones of God. And we studied that last week, or the last time we were together a little bit, that, that's the big issue between the Jews and the Arabs, the Ishmaelites and the Israelites, and that, that's the big issue there. Uh, uh, the Jewish, uh, uh, the Jewish uh, Torah and the Koran have two completely different versions of how that Abrahamic promise went. I mean, completely contradictory versions. And so 
they're hated because that, that's considered an arrogant when they claim to be the chosen ones of God. And, and, and you can dive in. You can go look these up. You, they're not hard to find. You can dive in and if you want to digest more of them. And, and, um, but the Bible doesn't really buy into any of this stuff. It, these are kind of all the little leaves on the tree. The root system the Bible dives into is that there's a spiritual rationale that has always been what prompted the hatred of the Jews and will continue to drive this, this intent hatred and build it and intensify it as we get into the end times. And so we, we want to look just quickly tonight and identify from Scripture kind of both the history uh, of where this, this spiritual root stuff has come from and how the future of the world will play out according to the Bible, uh, especially as it's connected to Israel. And, uh, but here's what you need to know, because God's not finished in the world, God's not finished with Israel. Israel will, Israel will not be wiped off the face of the planet. I'm not going to say that conflict doesn't have its consequences. And we've seen all the way through the Old Testament, there are times when Israel suffered and suffered severely. I'm not marginalizing that, but I'm not trying to say that that's not going to continue to be true. Uh, <clears throat> uh, humanity can be cruel, and there's consequences to this. But here's what we know, that uh, as long as the world is still in in motion, and God hasn't come to wrap up the end of all things, Israel will still be there because Israel's the centerpiece and Israel will be there till the final tick of the clock and we'll see that a little bit in scripture as we get there. In fact, uh, Romans chapter 11, uh, particularly in verse 26 is where it talks about the fact that God's heart is that someday Israel will be saved and he means that they will accept their, their, uh, their Messiah and they'll come into God's kingdom just like those of us that have accepted Jesus have. All right, so we're going to look at Revelations chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. <clears throat> I don't think we'll get through it all tonight. I would love for us to. Uh, if we don't, then uh, we'll make a decision whether we come back and try it again or whether your notes uh, are sufficient enough for you to take it from there. Um, but Revelations chapter 12 is, is one of the great passages because it, in 12 verses, it is a power-packed glance at kind of what's happened from the beginning of the history of, of the nation of Israel and, and of the promise of salvation and redemption all the way to the last tick of the clock. And, and I mean, there's thousands of years represented there in 12 verses. And it's got everything that anybody could want in, in a dramatic story, right? If this were made a movie, there's, you know, there, there's love and there's the birth of children and, and, and there's the prosperity and, and there's the hope that rises. And then there's these battle scenes. And I mean, it's just got everything you could want in, in a great story that unfolds. And so we're going to look at it tonight and see how this relates. But before we get into it, let me tell you a couple things about Revelations that will just help you mechanically over, you know, overarchingly. It won't fix everything. It doesn't make it easy, but it'll help you, okay? There's two things about Revelation that will help you. Number one is to understand that Revelation is mostly about the future, but it's partially about the past, and occasionally it throws in something that's an ongoing current reality. And, and for you to recognize that Revelation is just that, it, it's the curtain was pulled back and John got to see some things that you can't, nor, you can't see from the natural eye. These are spiritual revealings 
and John got to see it. Most of it was about the future and where things were headed, but some of it was about things that had already happened, and some of it's about things that were ongoing then and are still current realities today. Let me give you a quick example so you can uh, maybe grab hold of that. In Revelations chapter 2 and 3, Jesus is talking to seven literal churches, and these are churches that actually existed in the past And Jesus was using them as templates or as models to talk about churches today, different, different, uh, different types or different uh, models that churches will find themselves in. And Jesus was talking to these churches, but he's talking to churches that existed in the past. No doubt, as John was seeing this, John was familiar with these churches because they were contemporary to him and he understood this. And so Revelations 2 or 3 kind of starts out and it's an example of how not all the book of Revelation is futuristic, some of it's the past. Revelations chapter 4 is part of that current ongoing reality because it talks about this incredible worship scene that, that happens around the throne of God that's been happening and will continue to happen where you know the, the 24 elders uh, fall down and, and throw their crowns down and, and there's the, the, the cherubims that are flying, the seraphims that are flying saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come and it's this incredible scene and, and as that happened, God, God's glory is shining and, and the elders are falling and it just repeats over and over and over again. That's a current thing that's happening an ongoing reality to help us to understand something about the reality of heaven and the incredible splendor the incredible depth of, of God's, uh, God's revealing and, and the worship that happens in heaven, not a praise and worship service, but an actual in awe worship, a transformation that happens every time we meet the reality of God. And then finally, when you get to Revelation chapter five, it gets into some of the futuristic stuff and it'll go for several chapters. And it talks about there's a scroll that was gonna reveal what, the, what happens in, in the last days and how this thing unfolds. But John was, was very sad because nobody was, was worthy to open the, throne, the, the scroll. And then the lamb came and said, I'll open the scroll. And he begins opening the scroll and they had seven, seven seals that were there. And he's opening, cracking open those seals. And every time he did, another chapter or another event, another thing would happen that would move the clock along in, into the future of how the world would unfold. And you get to read all of those things and, and you get to see. So those are future things. So when you're reading Revelation, that's part of the challenge sometimes is we're, we're thinking it's all future, we're thinking it's all linear, and it's just gonna kind of walk us from, you know, from A to B, and then on, on through to Z, uh, and, and how this thing unfolds. But it's really not written like that, it's a mixture of things that are future, things that are past, and some of the things that are current ongoing realities. And, and they're just woven and, and sprinkled into these storylines. Here, here's the second thing that can help you, but it also makes it a little confusing sometimes, is that, It's been said that Revelation basically covers four tellings of the same things over and over and over. It's kind of like the Gospels, right? The Gospels share stories. Now, not every story in every Gospel is in all the other Gospels. 
But, but they're all telling the life and the ministry of Jesus when he was here on the earth from their different perspectives with their different emphasis. Oftentimes there are parallel stories and you'll read one story and you'll read the other story and you can see the similarities, but some will have details that the other didn't. Some will you know, say, well, there were two people there and one only talks about the one person that was there who happens to be the lead, you know, the main speaker and he left out the other guy because he didn't think it was that important. And so... The book of Revelation covers four tellings of the same things, and they all revolve around, around these, these, uh, these events or these groupings. They talk primarily about Israel, and I'm going to put say Israel in the church, because sometimes it leans heavily on Israel, like we'll see in Revelations 12, but the church is in there, and sometimes it leans heavily on the church, but Israel's in there. So it's not that they're always connected, but, but they're kind of grouped. And so they'll talk about Israel and the church. They'll talk about the rapture. And some Christians question whether that's even a real thing. It absolutely is. But there is quite a discussion as to when that happens. And there's at least three different opinions. But there is a rapture of the church that the Bible is, uh, is, uh, talks about. It talks about a tribulation, and that's as bad as the world will get when we get to the end times, there are seven years that this thing gets so intense. In fact, towards the end of the seven years, so intense that the Bible says if, if God wouldn't cut time short, it, this whole thing would just implode and it would on itself. But God cuts it short. He limits it out. And so you've got seven years of tribulation. It talks about Armageddon, which is a worldwide battle when finally all of the believers, all those that, that are going to give their heart to God, uh, have gone with the Lord, and the rest of the people on the earth have hardened their heart, and kind of like that movie year, decades ago with Will Smith, Independence Day, where they, they feel like that now they're, they're facing an alien, and they're going to get all the armies together, and they're going to come up with a, with a weapon system and a strategy, and when this alien comes, they're going to defeat him, although we know that alien as the Lord, and that they're all going to be gathered together, and the Lord's going to come down, and the battle will be short and decisive and very one-sided. And the Bible says that that will be quite a scene. In fact, so much so that it'll take years, years for, for this thing to even get cleaned up and reposture itself. And then there's this last thing called the millennium. And, and I don't quite even understand this, although it's obvious and it's a reality. But when all of this get, gets wrapped up, we go into this thousand year, it's kind of a pause, but it's a thousand years where the earth is, is reset and recreated and Jesus sets up the government and Satan is bound for a thousand years. And then for some reason that I still can't give you clarity on that, I can give you some rationale from the Bible, but for some reason after a thousand years, they unlock the key and let the devil out on parole. And, and for a thousand years, the earth has been exactly the way that God wanted it to be. But after a thousand years, he comes tramping back in and he just wreaks havoc around the world for the, what the Bible says is a short time. We don't even know what that means, but for a short time. And then uh, God grabs him again and we wrap this whole thing up for good and we go on to what's called eternity. So Revelation is just four different tellings of those kinds of groupings. Now, they're spread out over hundreds, thousands of years sometimes. At times, there's these unidentifiable gaps 
uh, I, I shouldn't say unidentifiable, uh, immeasurable gaps. We're not told how, how, you know, what comes next or how quick that is. Could be uh, the next year, could be 10 years, could be 100, 1,000 years later. And so there's all these gaps and it's all spread out. Uh, and, and that's part of where all the, the versions of what end time events are going to look like comes from. Because when, when you're looking at these four different tellings, some groups will lean towards this one telling and that's where they'll place, you know, things like the rapture and, and where they think the tribulation is going to start and how that bleeds into the millennium. And, and then another group leans on this telling and they'll see it very different. And so you get a lot of different versions and it can feel like it's very, very confusing. But I, I, I don't see it as confusing. I, I do see it as intriguing. And I don't know why with all, of the, with all of the intentionality that God made in so many other places in the New Testament to be super clear. That God chose to leave the book of Revelations open for such interpretation, but he did. And, and so it's an intriguing book. Now, I'm not going to tell you that it's a book that you have to feel like, yeah, it's just too hard. I can't understand it. I, I, I wouldn't agree with that. And uh, maybe we'll get into it sometime because I do think that there's, there's a way to work through and study. I, I've studied it. I have some confident opinions, but I'll just tell you, I have to leave it that because I, the Bible doesn't say that I'm 100% right, although I'm confident enough in, uh, in the context of the Bible to, to say that that's my conviction and that's my belief. So, so that, that could help you a little bit, j- just to ease you, so you don't dive in and you think, what in the world, there's animals and metaphors and flying things and stuff, fire and stuff's going on. Some of it's past, some of it's future, some of it's happening right now in heaven or, or in a spiritual uh, level that we don't see, but it's happening in the earth. And then, uh, but it's all telling the same story, the same things over and over and over again from a slightly different angle. And so that, that can help at least you to separate it. All right, let's get to, uh, to Revelations chapter 12. And uh, I, I'm just going to quickly read verses 1 through 12. It's just a quick narrative. It's a story just so that uh, you can kind of hear how the story unfolds. You've got it there on your paper. And then what we're going to do is we're going to go into a verse-by-verse study. And uh, verse-by-verse studies are wonderful if you've never done them before. Uh, they'll really help you to kind of stay with exact with the details of the story and and create a, a somewhat of a linear understanding, but but they take a little longer because we're just going verse by verse. So Revelations twelve uh, verses one through twelve. I'm reading from the New King James Version Bible, uh, <clears throat> but you can read it from uh, other translations as well. It says, "Now a great sign appeared in heaven: a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars." Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. And his tail drew a third of the stars from heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place, where, there, where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. 
And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. Verse 9, so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast out to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who, who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and to the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows he has a short time. So let's come back with a verse by verse. If it's a great story, you're thinking this is a science fiction narrative and somebody's got to make a movie about this and it's got all the bells and whistles. And I think you'll enjoy it once we get into this as we kind of unpack it. So let's start with verse number one. It says, now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head, a garland of 12 stars. Well, the first thing we have to notice is when it says a great sign appeared, this tells us that this, uh, that this is an actual, that this is not a literal person we're talking about, but, but it's a sign in the spiritual dimension that points towards something. It, it's also the first of seven signs that the book of Revelations will reveal, that John reveals, and each one is going to introduce a different, different uh, figure. We won't go into it, but if you look down on your notes, there's a box there. It says seven end time signs and figures. And, and those, those will give you that kind of that key, the code, so you can recognize when we're talking about a person, oh, that's who they're talking about. And they're pretty consistent through the book of Revelation and, uh, and in other, other places in the Bible as well. All right? So, uh, so it's not talking about an actual person. When it talks about a woman that's clothed with the sun, it's not talking about an actual person, although... There are some religions that, that we've seen, like the Catholic Church and, and, and some of the, other, um, the others have tried to, to coin this and say, no, that's an actual person. That was the Mother Mary. And so you'll see paintings or you, sometimes you'll see a statue and it looks like she's got the glow of the sun around her head. And, but that, that's not what was intended here. The Bible's really clear that this was a sign and not only that, it was a great sign. And, and in the Greek, I gave you the words there. The word great is where we get the word mega. It's actually that word in the Greek. And it means something that's extraordinarily large or massive in size, but it applies, the last one applies here. This is, this is one that has a, a massive scope. In other words, this wasn't just a sign for this one little part of history. This is a sign that spreads itself across, just across the spectrum. And this is an incredible and a great sign. And the word sign comes from the Greek word that means it's a signature or a seal that guarantees something's authenticity. So it's about, it's, un, it's starting right from the very beginning and it's about to tell us a story that something was going to be proclaimed, something was going to happen and it would put a signature or put a stamp on events that would spread themselves across the history of mankind. And it goes on and says, so this is what the sign is. It says, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head was a garland of 12 stars. 
So again, this is not an actual woman. We know this is a sign. And even though some people have tried to say, no, that's a person, and, and, uh, and they've, they've even compared it to some of the other women represented in the Bible. I have some of those in your notes there uh, where you can see they, they tried to pull that in. But, but jo- John's describing this with a very familiar and a very certain description. And it actually is the same description that shows up much earlier in the Bible in Genesis chapter 37, where this young boy named Joseph has a dream from the Lord. In fact, he has two dreams. And in the dream, he pictures his father, uh, who was called Jacob by birth, but later God changed his name to Israel, the father of the nation, and, uh, and his mother, Rachel, and, there, and him included with his other 11 brothers. And he, see, he sees the woman uh, pictured and describes it exactly the same way that you see described in Revelations chapter 12. And so it helps us to understand that this was symbolic and that the woman we're talking about here, it's not the mother of Jesus, Mary, uh, although she'll be depicted a little bit later on in this particular story. But it's really talking about Israel, who's, who's this faithful remnant un, under the old, old covenant and the promise that God would, given, uh, would give them that there's going to be a Messiah that's going to come from Israel, from, from the root system of Israel, all right? And so you've got lots of other, other places where you can see uh, the same kind of symbolism there that I've written, uh, that I've written in, your, uh, in some of the supporting scriptures. Verse number two says... That this particular woman, who we know as Israel now, then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. When it says being with child, again, this is referring to the promised child that would come through the nation of Israel, the Messiah Jesus. But here it notes that, that this birth, this fulfillment of, of, of the redemption was something that was going to cause great suffering and great pain. There would be a persecution that would happen. That there would be a price that had to be paid that Israel, as it endured this through history, think about not the actual birth, but think about the pain or the discomfort that happens during the, the pregnancy process. And this is referring to the, to the fact that there would be lots of pain leading up to lots of suffering, but particularly when they got into the labor, and we see that really intensified during the time of Jesus' birth when they were under Roman occupation and oppression. And so, <clears throat> pardon me. <clears throat> and so as we talk about this, this, this begins to, to help us to understand uh, and also introduces another figure that's about to pop up. And so verse number three, listen to this. It says, and then there's another sign. And that word, another sign, a little farther down in your notes, is, is the, the very same word that we saw in the first sign. It's talking about this signature. It's talking about something when you see it. This is a weighty, significant, uh, symbolic thing that will spread itself across the landscape. And when it says there's another sign, it comes from a Greek word, means that this is one of the very same kind. So in other words, the symbolism here, the, the categories, the, the, the signature that will stamp and say, this is, this is going to authenticate what's happening in this large landscape here. They're one and the same. They just take uh, diametrically different postures, but they're one and the same. And it says that here's another sign. And this sign is a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and 10 horns and seven diadems. 
And so again, it, it's not an actual figure. There wasn't an actual dragon that came down to earth, but, but it was, a, it was, a, uh, it was a, a signature or it was representative of the fierce power and the murderous nature that the devil would take on as he tried to stamp out the promised child that was going to come through Israel. It's, it's one of the first indications in this particular story that we begin to start seeing the narrative unfold that will answer the question, why is it that the Jews are hated so much? Be, because there's two sources that are feeding humanity. There's, there's God and the source of righteousness and all things that are good and pure and moral that come from the life that he designed us to live. And there's, then there's the antithesis of God, which the New Testament is going to describe as the anti-Christ, the opposite of what Christ brings, the anti, the enemy of, the opposition to everything that Christ would be. And, and the devil brings that. And so when, when we see the love and the covenant with Israel that God has promised that you're my chosen people, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to use you to bring the Messiah in that would bring redemption to all mankind. There was another sign. There was another spirit. There was another entity that also entered into the storyline. And this entity was quite the reverse. He, he was ferocious, and he had a murderous intent to do everything he could to try and destroy the nation of Israel so that he could stop the promised Messiah from getting into the earth. This has been from the very beginning, and and this has been true all throughout history. So whenever you read in the Old Testament that Israel was blessed and then they hardened their hearts or they forgot about God and they turned and a nation came and conquered them, all all of those things definitely were were instigated, were were initiated by the rebellion or the obedience of, of Israel to stay inside of God's covenant, stay in protection. But, but what, uh, but what, uh, what actuated this thing was a, a murderous spirit who's kind of waiting in the wings, hoping that Israel steps out of line. So they'll, they'll be outside of God's protection and they, they will be able uh, to go there and, and to wipe the nation of Israel out. And so you see this over and over and over again. In fact, it describes with, with some really important detail that helps us to see how this murderous red dragon, how he began to gain power and gain control in the earth. Now, we'll find it in the storyline here that it all started in the book of Genesis in Genesis chapter three, when God had created Adam and Eve and God said, you're in charge of the garden. You're in charge of the earth actually, but starting here in the garden and your job is to take control, to take authority and make sure that the garden, that the earth runs the way that, that I've stated that it should. And we don't know how long everything was going great. Couldn't have been, you know, it couldn't have been a short period of time because they had a lot of things to do. They're naming animals and making sure they're understanding, you know, the rhythms. And and so we don't know how long though, but at some point, by the time we get to Genesis chapter three, this serpent who here is called a dragon enters the garden and he deceives Eve. He starts questioning her and putting thoughts in her mind and Eve it is just not thinking straight. She goes to her husband and the book of Hebrews tells us Adam was thinking straight, but he'd been wanting to taste that fruit for a long time. And this was his chance. He kind of saw what he thought was a little gray area and he stepped in. And the moment 
that they did what the enemy invited them to do, in, in reality, they became the servants to the devil because they were supposed to be in charge of him and they let him be in charge of them. And the moment that happened, the power shifted. And from that point on, the enemy had the power in the world. He'd been given, uh, Adam and Eve had given that over to him. And now he's in charge of the world system, not of the universe. He's not the owner of the world. God is sovereign. He never loses that. But, but it's like letting someone move into the house that you own. And now they're the tenant. And they have a lot of say-so what happens in that house. In fact, Paul refers to the devil as the God, small g, of this world. Current, in the past, but currently too. And so he's now in control. And this particular verse is going to show you how over these hundreds and thousands of years, moving into the end times, how he will swell up in his ability to control big political parties, big giant military campaigns, and it'll look like he's taken over the world and then all of a sudden it'll kind of come back and neutralize because you know the, somebody will stand up for righteousness. And, but, but there's just ebb in this flow that's happened over and over again and it'll continue to bulge all the way until we get to the end times and at some point it'll just begin to swell and keep on going. But here's how it describes it. says that he has seven heads and ten horns and diadems. The other, other translations just use the word crowns. So it crowns on, on these seven heads. And so the number seven throughout the Bible always represents fullness or completeness. Like th this, is, th this is as big as it can get. You've got everything there. And the seven heads represents authority or intelligence and shrewdness. But here's what's important. Minus wisdom. Because the Bible teaches that wisdom is always a byproduct of the fear of the Lord. And so He's swelling in his, in his intellectual capacity. He's, helling, he's swelling in his authority. He's swelling you know, to the biggest he can possibly get. He just doesn't have wisdom, but he's got intelligence and strategy and, and shrewdness. And, uh, and, and the Bible says he's growing. And not only that, it says, and he's got 10 horns. And the book of Daniel says these 10 horns are symbolic of 10 nations that will align underneath this dragon's uh, authority, underneath what he's prompting them to do. And, um, and, uh, and, and this is what he'll use to move in the earth, to move his plan and his narrative forward. It's interesting too, because it, it's, a, it's, a, it's also an insight into what we see in the book of Isaiah and Ezekiel when it talks about Lucifer, this brilliant angel, before he fell and became Satan. But one of the reasons why he fell was because he had this pride issue and he wanted to be just like God. And so here we find out he's swelling in his authority and he's presumptively claiming that he's got this royal authority. He can somehow get bigger and more powerful and wield more control uh, uh, than God does, even though God will always maintain and will never lose his true kingship there. And so again, that's another validation of the New Testament that he's the God of this world. 
Uh, I think we've got time for a couple more verses. Verse number four says, And his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven, and he threw them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour the child as soon as it was born. Well, when it says his tail, his tail drew a third of the stars, uh, many people believe that this is a reference to the fact that a third of heaven's angels at one point followed Satan in rebellion against God. Well, you won't find a specific verse that will validate that other than this one. And this one is an inference at best. However, there's lots of other verses, and I've given you some there that will validate that a number of God's angels, it doesn't specify other than this one right here, but a number of God's angels did in fact follow Satan in a rebellion, and, uh, and they were cast out of heaven with him. Goes on also says, and the dragon, that's Satan, we know that, stood before the woman, we know that's Israel, who was ready to give birth, and we know that will be the Messiah. And, but the Satan stood there to devour her child as soon as it was born. And, uh, and we can actually see this. Now we're getting to the point, again, this is spread out over thousands of years of history of the world, but now we're getting to the verse where it actually happened. This is the beginning of the New Testament. This is Luke chapter 2 when Mary was pregnant by, by God and she's going to, to have the baby. And this is what happened right here. And, uh, and so this reference is that even though we sing Silent Night and we're talking about the shepherds that were on the hill and the baby in the manger and that was wonderful, but behind the scenes, there was a dragon that was postured in a murderous envy and he was waiting for the opportunity for that little baby to be born so that he could find a way to take, out a, to, to take his life out. And in fact, we see it show up in just a very short period of time after that. Once Herod, who was the ruler at the time, found out that there was a king that had been born somewhere in his region, he made that order to kill every Hebrew male child under the age of two. Thinking, if I kill them all, I'm going to get him. And so, but... Uh, but Joseph was spared because the angel talked to him the night before and said, grab your family right here in the middle of the night, get out and go to Egypt and you'll be saved. And uh, because of that, a whole bunch of Hebrew children were, 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 uh, were destroyed. Again, it's that spirit that just hates the nation of Israel is trying anything in the world to extinguish the Messiah. And this was a last ditch effort because he knew the baby had been born and uh, he was willing to kill every male child under two years old in an entire nation in order to, to wipe that child out. <clears throat> and yet God spared him. Verse number five says, so that she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Now, if, if you just look at this at face value and you stop and overlay it, you can see that in this one verse, this is capturing both the birth of Jesus all the way through his life and ministry here and on through the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus when he went and ascended and he gave the great commission to his church. All those years right there is captured in that one verse right there. And it says, so she bore a male child who was, ruled, who was to rule all the nations with iron. And again, that's the birth of Jesus, obviously. Uh, but... Uh, Give me one second here. I want to make sure I don't leave anything out. Yep, this is the birth of Jesus. And this one now, even though Israel is still the woman represented, and we need to hold on to that because that'll keep going. But specifically now, we're dialing in on one particular Israelite named Mary, who actually was the, was the mother uh, who actually birthed Jesus. And um, 
And it says, goes on and says, this was the Messiah that was to, or that would at some point rule the nations with a rod of iron. And interesting enough, because we, it paints a picture in our mind of what we think that is. But the word rule there is where we get the word shepherd or the word pastor. And it actually means to feed or to tend or to shepherd. And so it's not talking about someone with this authoritarian, someone who's going to you know, stand up military style, although that's what many of the Jewish people thought the Messiah was going to be, that he was going to come and lead a literal rebellion. And once again, like you saw over and over in the Old Testament, the Romans were going to be defeated. They were going to recapture their land and their temple, and they were going to go back to being you know, the, the physical nation on the earth that, that, uh, that would be God, chosen by God. But here it says that the Messiah was destined to rule like a shepherd, to feed, to care for, to tend to, to the people of God. But he was also to rule with a rod, a rod of iron. This is a really interesting Greek phrase because it, it's really talking about, especially when it's referring to a ruler, which it is here, it's referring to the royal scepter that symbolizes a firm and a rigorous rule that would establish dominance over rebellion and would culminate in the, in, uh, culminating in, in the triumphant return of the Lord to rule over everyone. So it's not implying tyranny. It's not talk, when it says a rule of iron, it's not talking about uh, you know, um, a, a tyrannical or a dictator or someone who is ruthless or heartless. It, it, it's not that. We've already found out. No, his rule is going to be very tender, like a shepherd, like really caring. What's best for the people? How can I protect? How can I preserve? How, how can I uh, provide for them? But he's going to do it in a way that's very decisive in a way that's very intentional so that he doesn't allow any rebellion, he doesn't allow any evil force to sneak in and begin to corrupt. And ultimately, this will all culminate in Jesus' triumphant return where Isaiah chapter nine says the government will be on his shoulders. And it'll be the first time in the history of mankind, by the way, the government will be on his shoulders and the people will call his name wonderful, counselor. He's a mighty God. When do you hear that said about politicians? But the whole earth, when Jesus is in charge of the government, the whole earth will say, that's the way it's supposed to be. That's exactly how it's supposed to look because of the heart that he brings to this. You also see an additional representation earlier in the Bible in Genesis chapter three and in a couple of other passages I gave you there that represent this prophetic promise of the balance between the rule, the loving, caring shepherd, but also the one who rules with intentionality and with decisiveness. You see that when God promised that the Messiah would come and he would crush Satan's head. He's going to put a stop to all that rebellious stuff, all this deception, all this trickery, all this selfishness. He's going to put a stop to all that. He's not, he's not going to let that happen. Now, uh, let's do this last part, and then we'll have to end it right here uh, because we're out of time. But, but this, we, we got to a good point because when we get to this part in the storyline, again, that last verse captures the birth and the, the destiny of Jesus, but all the way through his ascension. And we all know that when Jesus died on the cross, rose again, and then he ascended into heaven, that gave way to the birth of the New Testament church, and that put us in a whole different time block 
a whole different, uh, some people call it a dispensation or a whole different period of time, a whole different chapter in the unfolding of the history of mankind. It was between the Old Testament and now, or the Old Covenant, now is a new covenant where, where redemption's been purchased and paid for by Jesus, where for the first time in the history of mankind, people can be born a second time. The first time they're born in the natural through their mother's womb, but the second time they're legitimately born from the deepest part of them inside to the outside, and they become, uh, they become part of the family of God. The DNA of God begins to flow in them. Some scholars compare it to just like when Adam was first created and God knelt, and God knelt down and breathed into him the breath of life. That when we get born again, the resurrection life of Jesus is breathed into us and our spirit that was dormant or dead becomes alive in Christ and we're a brand new species of human being. One that's fully alive spiritual, but also fully alive in the natural here. And that, so that all happened right there in that, in that previous verse. And so even though from this point on, we'll pick it up here the next time. I'll have to figure out when the next time is. But we'll pick it up in verse 6 the next time. And even though the narrative in verse 6 is going to stay with the nation of Israel, it's going to talk about what happens in the nation of Israel, there's a giant insertion here that, that we, we need to see that's happening in this, again, this thousands of years story that's being told. Because right here, uh, when it says that, that her child was caught up to God in his throne, again, that's an obvious reference to the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. But right here is where many, many people insert and say, and that's why we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Because when the body, when, when the child is caught up to the Lord, the church as the Christ body, in that time frame right there, in the giant unfolding of the story, that's the time frame when, when Christ's body is also caught up to God in his throne before we move to the next verse, which begins to unfold the seven years of tribulation. And so I'm not saying that you have to buy into that. I'm just saying that's a really big insert and again, if you understand where some of these other events go, you'll be able to see the gap and you can widen it enough just to put it in there and say, how, how does that fit? Do I, do I see where that, where that fits the narrative? Uh, the other side is uh, in order to acknowledge Christ's ascension, that this child actually went, was taken up and went up to God, that also helps us to recognize that uh, you have to assume or you have to accept both the death and the resurrection of Jesus because that was part of the nar narrative. And you also have to accept what Jesus proclaimed and declared and established before he left. And that was the birth of the church. And the reason it's important you fit all of that right there in that, in that verse and you recognize all that happened is because when that happened, Satan's obsession to destroy God's people from the face of the earth, all of a sudden this got super complicated. Super complicated for him. It compounded and split in a couple of different directions. First of all, he had been trying for all of the Old Testament to destroy Israel in order to stop the Messiah from being born. He failed. Second of all, 
Once the Messiah was born, he tried for the entire 33 years that Jesus was alive to kill Jesus and never could do it over and over and over again. There, there's, there's scriptures that talk about how they tried to stone him. They tried to throw him off a cliff. The devil even tried to tempt him to commit suicide. Jump off the cliff and see, because didn't God say that the angels would catch you and you wouldn't? Listen, he tried everything in the world to, to kill the Messiah while he was here, but he never could pull it off. When it did come time to die, Jesus, Jesus told Pilate, I, nobody takes my life, I'm giving it. And so he crucified Jesus in a most, a most horrendous way. And again, it's not just the cruelty of the Roman soldiers, it was the murderous spirit. It wasn't good enough just to take his life. He had to, he had to shred him to where he looked like a piece of meat hanging there and have him to die in the most agonizing way. And the Bible talks about when that happened, Satan thought he had succeeded. But it was three days later that he realized that he only provided the means for the plan of redemption to actually be completed. And when the plan of redemption was completed, the birth of the church happened. And in one day, what Jesus brought to the earth split into 3,000 different sparks. The life of God went in 3,000 directions and all of a sudden Satan's got a real problem on his hands. He's, he was just trying to stop one guy. Now he's trying to stop 3,000 and a couple of chapters later, another 5,000 men, which scholars say in reality probably was at least 10,000 if you include women, but if you put children in there because oftentimes in the book of Acts, it says they were saved and their whole household. So we, we could be talking not just an addition of 5,000, we could be talking an addition of ten to 15,000 or more. And Satan's watching this unfold and he's like, we have a real problem here. And so he's trying to double down on this. And so when redemption was complete and the birth of the church began to accelerate, Satan's got now a double dilemma and this put him into a whole nother gear and a whole nother frenzy. The first thing that happens, he's still got to keep his eye on Israel because Israel's part of God's time clock. Israel's still God's chosen people. Israel's going to be around. And so he's still got to keep his eye on Israel. He's got to figure out how to extinguish Israel. If, if the rationale, the biblical rationale is if he can somehow wipe Israel off the map, even though he's got this Jesus to contend with, if he can wipe Israel off the map, it messes up God's proclaimed time frame and series of events that, that's going to happen. It messes that up so somehow God can't complete his strategy. So he's still trying to kill Israel, trying to wipe them off the mat. But the second thing that the birth of the church did, it brought the church to the forefront of Christ's mission to spread the gospel and so that these little seeds, these little sparks are going all over the world and they're telling people, whosoever will call upon the name of Jesus, you can be saved. And, and, and I mean, and Satan can't stop this. He's tried. But part of Jesus's announcement was, I'm going to build a church that's going to keep on building and the very powers, the very gates, the very thresholds of hell can try as hard as they can, but they won't be able to stop it. And he hasn't been. He hasn't been, think about the persecution, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about this next time, but the persecution that's happened all over, it happened right away in the, in the, in the New Testament. 
And, and, and he moved into the rulers there that got this murderous hatred towards the Christians and, and began to try to extinguish them. And all they did, it was like taking an oil fire and you know, splashing water on it. He caught, they caused them to scatter all over the face of the earth and take the gospel with them. And this is what Satan's been contending with every, every time. And so that, the reason that it's important to see that because when we see that and we know that Jesus Christ accomplished his redemption, he rose to the Father, and he birthed the New Testament church in the meantime, and that's been growing and spreading. This is what helps us to understand the New Testament puts a new term in there that didn't show up in the Old Testament, and it it gives Satan a new moniker, a new title, and it calls him the spirit of the Antichrist. And we know the spirit of the Antichrist is what's moving about in, in the earth today corrupting and twisting every narrative with two primary goals in mind. It has to destroy Israel and get Israel off the planet. And it has to somehow stop these Christian people from spreading the good news that Jesus will give them salvation so that Satan can somehow carry out his plan. And that's exactly what's happening uh, to all of this that's happening right now. And so we, we have to be attentive to what's going on with Israel. We have to be attentive to, to what's going on in the spiritual realm. We, we, it's okay to understand, you know, politically and, uh, and, and economically and all those other theories. It's okay to see that. And you, you'll hear it in the rhetoric and you say, I, I know what you're talking about there. But in all of that, what undergirds this is you have a monstrous enemy who is just blinded with rage and really, you'll, you'll see when we get to the end of the story, with panic. Because nothing he's tried for thousands of years is working. He keeps making it worse and worse and worse. And he knows the clock is ticking and, and each event that, that unfolds, he's one step closer to what he hopes is victory, but what is most certain going to be his demise and his defeat. And he's like a cornered animal. He is panicked. And the more panic he gets, the more he thrashes and lashes out, the more there's no more rules, there's no more strategy. He just unleashes everything he can, and you'll see that unfold as the story goes on. We have to keep our eyes on Israel because, listen to me, this murderous spirit is more desperate than ever before, and he's got more control and more voice in the world right now than he has in quite some time. And as the hatred and the persecution of the Jews rise, so will the hatred and the persecution of Christ's church. Jesus said that. And, and I, if, you, if we would have been talking about this 10 years ago, I would have said, you know, talk to you about other countries around the world and how, you know, thank God we're living in America. But in the last five years, we've started to see little shadows here. And, it, and if you think, well, yeah, but that's not a big deal. These were the same kinds of little shadows that showed up in those places like Nazi Germany. Not like different, the same. The exact same. Because the enemy has a strategy, it worked one time, he's going to keep trying it again. Now, let me just leave you on a positive note. In all of that, the Bible says, don't you dare be afraid. In fact, don't even let it get you down. Don't lose sleep at night. It says, listen, be of good cheer. Because Jesus said, I was right in the middle of all that. Look how intense the Antichrist tried to, tried to kill me before and then during my life. And look how, look how intense it was. But I overcame the world. And because I've overcome the world, if you'll stay in me, you'll overcome the world too. You guys been blessed by the word tonight? All right. Stand to your feet. Let's pray. <laughs>
Heavenly Father, thank you for being so open. Thank you for being so wonderful to help us to see. Give us the wisdom of God now as we're searching the scriptures. Help each of us to hear from the Holy Spirit who is the teacher, who promised that he would lead and guide us into all the truth. Lord, anything that brought even the slightest little whiff or notion of fear or insecurity, any of that, just wipe it out, Holy Spirit. And bring such a confidence in your presence that you're big enough, you're strong enough, you're ever present, you're so aware of every minute detail, even know the hairs on our head, Lord, that you you won't lose sight of us for a moment, but you said, I'll be with you every step of the way, all the way to the end of the world. We put ourselves in your care. Thank you, Lord, as we go home tonight. You'll bring us uh, insights and, uh, and, uh, and understandings from what we're studying. And Lord, as we lay our head on the pillow tonight, we will sleep in peace according to the word of God and wake up tomorrow morning refreshed in you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for more messages. If you like what you're hearing, share it with your friends. For more content from Lakeshore and information on services, check us out at lakeshorecf.com.